0: Welcome to the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have audio from our service on Easter, April 8th, 2012. The day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The the day when the world was surprised by hope. So, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and head over to the talk. Thanks for listening May you live in the reality and the power of the resurrection. May you be surprised by the hope of Jesus Christ today. He is risen. He is risen okay. Good. 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 That's that. We're getting there. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Today is, is kind of the equivalent of the Super Bowl of the Christian faith. This is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the day where we celebrate the most momentum, momentous moment in, uh, in history, where Jesus rose from the grave. A lot of people have died, but only one of them's come back to life, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, this week, there's, this weekend coming up, there's going to be a, a movie coming out called Blue Like Jazz. Has anybody read the book Blue Like Jazz? It's a great book by uh, the author Donald Miller. And uh, he he talked about, I, I heard him several years ago, kind of talking about the process of converting a book into a screenplay because you can't, you can't just take the book word for word and make a movie. And so he was trying to convert Blue Like Jazz into uh, a screenplay. And, and he noted this when he began studying stuff about making screenplays and movies. He said, you know, a good movie will reset our internal compass. You know, when you watch a good movie, it reminds you about the things that are important, right? Like you you may have just gone in to be entertained, but a good movie, the truly great movies, the ones that we return to again and again... The ones that are considered classics, those movies have a way of resetting our internal compass. We we come out with a greater understanding of, of what life is really about, even if the story is completely fictional. For instance, one of my favorite movies, there's this guy named Luke Skywalker. <laughs> We're gonna get to that one. <laughs> I find that in the truly great movies, one common theme you see in most of them is that the protagonist has to step from a small story into an epic story, step from a small understanding of how the world is into something greater. Star Wars opens up with this guy, Luke Skywalker, who's he's just living with his aunt and uncle on some far off planet, and life is kind of boring. But then he gets swept up into this epic battle between good and evil. But what even expands it further is he finds out in The Empire Strikes Back, spoiler alert, he finds out in the closing scenes of The Empire Strikes Back, Luke, I'm your father. He finds out that, that, that the guy who is his arch enemy is really his father. And all of a sudden, it completely changes the dynamic of the whole story. He's not just fighting a faceless enemy. Now he's fighting for his own flesh and blood. It's personal. His his whole story has expanded. Then, of course, there's Frodo Baggins. <laughs> a small hobbit in the shire. and And hobbits are known for being kind of simple creatures that like to garden, have first breakfast and second breakfast, uh, first lunch and second lunch. They, they, They like the simple life. They're not prone to adventures. They like to keep it simple. And yet we find this little hobbit named Frodo Baggins who gets swept up into an epic journey that will end up saving Middle Earth. But one of my favorite stories that came out in, in the last uh, hundred years was, was written by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. And they've made some movie, movies out of that. And in that story, we see these, these four kids, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They're playing hide-and-seek. And, and they end up in this magic wardrobe in which they stumble into a whole different place called Narnia. A world that has been under a perpetual winter by the evil White witch. They end up staying there, and it turns out they've got an important part to play in the freeing of all of Narnia. One day they will, actually in Narnia, they grow up to be adults, they grow up to be kings and queens. And then one day they finally exit the wardrobe to find that in our world, time has not passed the same. They're, they're just children, but now they're children who've lived with an expanded world. They've they fought in a battle. They can never go back to reality as normal. This is, these, these stories move us, I think, in, in, in this particular way because they are echoes of the great story, the story we celebrate today, the story of how our world was surprised by hope. You know, the the resurrection, a lot of people say various things about it, but I think one of the things that stands out that, that's most amazing is how surprising it was. Even those closest to Jesus didn't see it coming. They too were living in too small of a story. They had a big story, but it was too small to understand what Jesus was about to do. There was about to be a twist in the plot that no one, not the Romans, not the Jews, not even Satan himself, saw coming. It's the story that we celebrate today. Now... This day and age, everybody lives in their own kind of narrative. The, actually, uh, scientists say one of the things that truly makes us humans is that we have this idea of story. We all live in a story. Now, for a lot of people in America, it's the, the story of the American dream. You go to college, you find a spouse, you buy a house, you have 2.5 children. <laughs> a couple of cars, you have a nice retirement. Maybe the, the narrative you're living in is, is one of climbing up the corporate ladder, being successful. Maybe the, the narrative is you're living in is whoever dies with the most toys wins. We all have narratives, but it's, it, things haven't changed with human beings. Back in the first century in Palestine, there were narratives that people were living in as well. One was the narrative of Rome. It was a narrative of progress, power. You know, I, I got to go to the, uh, the the Holy Land last year, and one of the things that I was not expecting was how much Roman influence there was. I saw roads built by Romans, aqueducts in the middle of the desert, Roman columns, and all kind. It, it was just astounding. I mean, you could see houses down in New Orleans after Katrina, it, things that had been abandoned, and... Pretty much within a a couple of months, they look like they've been there for hundreds of years. I was gazing at these things that were built 2,000 years ago, and they're still there. That was the dream of Rome. It was progress. It was technology. It was amazing to behold, but it came with power, with the sword, with violence. It was all dominance and control, but that was the narrative of Rome. Then there was the Greek philosophy narrative, which was enlightenment through intellectualism, whether it was the Stoics or the Epicureans, those who followed Plato, those who followed Aristotle. It was the path to to seeking enlightenment by philosophy in the mind. But in Israel, the one dominant narrative was the narrative set forth in the Jewish scriptures. Now. In this day and age, I I find that I've got a lot of friends who are Republicans, a lot of friends who are Democrats, some who are anarchists, and some who are, uh, (laughs) you know, independents. But I I find that a lot of people want the same things. Democrats, Republicans, they all want the same things. They just disagree on how to get there, right? Well, the same was true... Back in the days of Jesus, a lot of people lived with the central expectation of the Messiah. See, Jewish scriptures, the, the big thing that everybody was waiting for was the Christ, the Messiah, the King. God had promised David that there would be a king that would come in his line, whose, whose kingdom would be everlasting And everybody was expecting this king to show up and restore Israel to its former glory because for hundreds of years they'd been dominated by one empire after another. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, everybody was waiting for the Messiah. But they all kind of disagreed on how he was going to come. First, there was the Pharisees. Their way of, of of thinking that the Messiah was come was was going to come was that they needed to follow the rules really good. You know, maybe if we can start this club of people and we take the law really seriously and follow the rules. Heck, let's not just follow the hundreds of rules in the Old Testament. Let's come up with hundreds of new rules. And that was the Pharisees. And they they actually. I mean, you know, a lot of people look at the Pharisees as just being legalists, but they truly. We're doing this to, to, to hasten the coming of the Messiah. They thought that if they followed the rules enough, God would be impressed and he'd send the Messiah. But they also kind of thought that if he sent the Messiah, they'd kind of be in the ruling, you know, in the inner circle. The Pharisees, they lived within society, but they formed their own little spiritual club where you had to dress a certain way. You had to talk a certain way. You look a certain way. You didn't hang out with certain groups of people that was the Pharisee mindset. There was another group called the Essenes. If you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I got to see the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and and it was a community of Essenes that lived there. And the Essenes, they saw that the world was going to hell in a handbasket, and they said, man, this place is so wicked. Let's pull away from it. Let's just go start our own little group out in the middle of nowhere at the worst place on earth where nobody will bother us. I When I saw where the Essenes lived, I'm like, I grew up in West Texas, and it was more desolate than West Texas. It was, I don't know how you could live there. But the Essenes, they came up with, like the Pharisees, they had all kinds of rules, but their their central idea was purity. We need to be pure. So they had ritual purity rules for everything. But the way that they viewed the world was that that if they pulled away from the world, God would someday come and judge the whole world and and destroy all the wicked people, all the other people, by the way. It was only going to be their little group that would go to heaven, their little group that would be rescued from all of this. So you had one group that was a club within society, one group that completely pulled away from society. And then there was a group called the Zealots. Now, the zealots were, actually, we find out that there was at least one or two zealots in Jesus' uh, 12 disciples. But the zealots, these were folks who were like, man, Rome is bad. We just need to take up arms. Forget this waiting around for God to send the Messiah. Who knows? One of us might be the Messiah. Let's just go out there and fight Rome. And so you can read books uh called the Maccabees. Some, if you have a Catholic Bible, you might have the Maccabees in there. Well, they they talk about the Maccabean revolts. And so a lot of people were zealots. They were taking up arms, trying to actually start a revolt. But they did this not divorced from Judaism. They saw that God is on their side. God may be with us. The Messiah may be among us. We need to force the issue. Then there were just ordinary people like you and me. And for most people that didn't get into one of these little clubs, they were waiting for the Messiah, but most of their life was just trying to survive without getting crushed by the empire. And I would say that probably most of Jesus' disciples fell into that camp. Everyone was waiting for the Messiah. They all had different views on how they thought He would come. But what we find in the, in the Easter story is that none of them could see what was coming—the day when the world was going to be surprised by hope. Today, I want to—we're going to look at the at some passages from Luke chapter twenty-four. And if anybody needs a Bible, we have some. But I'm going to read it, so you can just listen to me if you'd like, or you can just sleep or whatever. You know, um, we do have more coffee. <laughs> Luke twenty-four, verse one. On the first day of the week. Very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Why do you take spices down to a tomb? Uh, because when somebody's been dead for a couple of days, they start stinking. So they, the, the women were going down there to care for the body of Jesus and, and put some spices to help uh, like potpourri, uh, help it smell better. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men, clothed in clothes that gleamed like lightning, stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Just checking, just checking. <laughs> Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered Over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven disciples and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others who with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed like nonsense. I love this. The first people who show up at the tomb is a bunch of women. And they come back, and guys in typical guy fashion are like, these women are talking nonsense. They're, they're just talking crazy women talk. You know, he's risen, we saw two guys. Oh, whatever. <laughs> nonsense. Even though, what did the angel say to these women? The angel reminded them of everything Jesus had said. And they go, oh, wait. <laughs> Jesus has been talking about this for a long time. The disciples had heard the same thing. Jesus had told them on several occasions he would one day have to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, and he would rise from the grave. But still, the disciples, they didn't see it coming. They were clueless, as evidenced by their words. Verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Peter Here's the report of these women. He shows up at the tomb. He sees the linen cloth all lying there folded up nicely. And he's still wondering what happened. (laughs) He's heard what Jesus had said. He heard what the women said. But he's still wondering. Now, we get to one of my favorite parts in the story. I love this part in verse 13 because it shows us some wonderful things about Jesus. I love the way God kind of likes to surprise people. Verse, th- verse 13, now on that same day, two of them, the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk together? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I love this. Jesus, for some reason, he's, his identity is concealed to these disciples. And he's asking, Why are you guys so depressed? They're like, What do you mean? Didn't you hear what happened? Are, are you like the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't watch CNN? <laughs> you didn't follow Jesus on Twitter? You didn't get the update. <laughs> You're the only person. And, and Jesus, what happened? Oh, we were so, this guy Jesus was amazing. He was a great prophet, a teacher. Actually, we had hoped that he was going to be the, the Messiah, the one that was going to set Israel right. I mean, just a few days ago, he, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and everybody was thinking, this guy's going to take over. He's going to be the king. But he got crucified. Oh, it was awful. We had hoped that he was going to be the Messiah. See, they're living in too small of a story. Their story is just about Israel and Israel's king, and they're about to get a surprise. They're going to be surprised by hope. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our crazy women amazed us. They went out to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came back and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said But him they did not see. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then to enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. (laughs) They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They were surprised by hope. They were in the midst of despair, depression. They thought all was lost. And all of a sudden, they realized the guy they've been talking to for hours is the resurrected king. He is the Messiah. But he's more than the Messiah of Israel. He's the Messiah, the king of the world. God has now become king. And as soon as they realize it, gone. <laughs> The first thing Jesus does when He finds them is He reconfigures their understanding of Scripture. Jesus makes them realize that that everything from from the Old Testament, all of Scripture, the whole story, the whole narrative, was actually pointing towards Him. Jesus was the fulfillment. He had to die. He had to pay the price for the failure of Israel to live up to the covenant expectations. They couldn't do it. God had to step in. And he took the sins of Israel, the sins of the whole world. What, what Jesus was, was showing them was that there was a bigger enemy than Rome. It was sin. There was a bigger price that had to be paid. It wasn't just you know, lambs being sacrificed down at the temple, as was the, the custom. It required none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But He also showed him that the glory was much greater. It wasn't just going to be a king of Israel. Jesus was expanding on the promises given to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before. I will bless you so that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Jesus was opening up the covenant to anyone who would accept Him as king. But what's amazing is Jesus doesn't just reconfigure their understanding of Scripture and and leave it there. He invites them into the story. That's the wonderful thing about Christianity. It's not just a set of beliefs that we hold on to. We're actually invited in to be agents, characters, participants in this amazing narrative. Verse 45 says this, and this is Jesus is now with his inner circle of disciples. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. See, Jesus just doesn't reconfigure their understanding of, of the great story. He reconfigures their way to interpret it. See, I find today there are a lot of Christians who are kind of like the Pharisee. They take that mentality. They, they, they form their own little club where you got to dress a certain way and you got to talk a certain way. And, and you can only get in if you, if you believe these certain things and you can talk like this and do that. And very exclusive. They exist within our world but it's very hard to get in their little club. There are other people who are Christians who, who see how bad the world's getting, all the junk on TV, all the junk on the news, and we just need to go start a, a community out in the middle of nowhere. We need to pull away, make our own little Christian society, and just pray for the judgment of the rest of the world. Occasionally, these groups will, will show up at Mardi Gras or... Or funerals and hold up signs, you know, God hates America. You're going to be judged. God hates you. Then there's even those who think that God's on our side, so we just need to take up arms and go fight uh, anybody that disagrees with us. But Jesus says, nah, it's not the way the Pharisees view it, or the Essenes, or the Zealots. Actually, even you disciples, you've kind of missed it. I'm not taking you out of this world and I'm not just asking you to hang on until the world is judged. I'm not asking you to form your own little Christian club where you can just, you know, gaze at each other's navels. No, I am sending you in the midst of this world to be a part of my kingdom redemption plan. You get to be a part of my kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. I'm sending you out to be witnesses of me, of what I've done. And what do we see the disciples doing as soon as, you know, they stay in Jerusalem, God sends them the Holy Spirit. But what do they do? They live in this world, but kind of like Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy from Narnia, they're never going to live in this world the same way. They're in the midst of this world, but they're not of it. Jesus has shown them a completely different kingdom, a kingdom that's not in power, in strength, in mighty shows of forth, but a kingdom that comes by people who are forgiven, who love, who seek peace. It's the fellowship of the kingdom. An upside-down kingdom. How does this kingdom come? Well, it comes through the ministry of Jesus. It comes through the cross, through the resurrection life, breaking into this world that's ruled by power hungry empires, religious zealots, corruption, and exploitation, into a world of people who are living in two smallest stories stories that are just about me and my stuff and my prominence. God's kingdom is coming into that. You know, Jesus once said that the kingdom of God it's it's like yeast in a lump of dough. If you put some yeast and some some dough, that yeast what does it begin to do? It begins to expand. It begins to move. It be, it's something living is going on inside it, but you can't see what it is. It kind of looks like magic or something. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. You can't even really see the process going on, but you see the effect of it. God's kingdom is breaking into to the midst of the world in the same way. Sometimes it doesn't look all that spectacular. It's not flashes of light. It's not what everybody thought. And yet, it's coming. You know, one of the... the the biggest failures I think of people in the church today is when it comes to the Gospels, they see the only important bits being that he was born by, uh, born by a virgin and that he died on a cross. And they miss all the stuff in the middle. But understand the writers of the Gospel, they called the whole story the Gospels. The whole thing. Jesus healing people. Jesus eating at a table with outsiders. Folks like tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus mourning with those who mourn. Jesus touching lepers, Jesus raising the dead. All of that is the good news. And guess what? When the kingdom of God shows up, it looks like that. And the good news is that God's actually called us to be a part of that stuff in the middle. Empowered by his life. When the kingdom comes, it looks like Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gave the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, commonly known as the Beatitudes. And I think this is a great picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like this. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Theologian Dallas Willard, he Paraphrase this is, blessed are you lucky bums. (laughs) What is poor in spirit? It's people who don't really have what it takes. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like, man, I don't know. I'm not real good at Bible trivia. (laughs) I struggle with my prayer life. I kind of feel like I don't know much about this. Well, when I look at the people that Jesus chose to be in his inner circle tax collectors, fishermen. He didn't choose people with seminary degrees. I think Peter and Paul and John and Matthew, they would all agree that they're a bunch of lucky bums. I'm just happy to be here. I don't know why I'm here, but I'm happy that Jesus has chosen me. You're a lucky bum this morning. You are. I went to church and I found out I was a lucky bum. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who, who, who feel like there are things wrong, I'm so sad by the state of things, you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be right, for they're going to be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will show, be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the interesting thing about this list, you don't see anything like, blessed are the talented. <laughs> blessed are, are those who got it all together. Blessed are those who've got good political connections. Blessed are the famous. You know what's great about this list? We can all get on it. (laughs) But you know what's also great? This is what the kingdom of God looks like. If you ever have mourned, if you ever feel like, man, I'm just an outsider. I just don't, I don't think I can do this thing. You are blessed because you're in the right place to receive the kingdom of God. How can we respond to this great surprise by hope uh, of hope that that we see on resurrection morning? Well, today, I just want us to close by worshiping together. I think I've got a band somewhere around here. I've got a bass player. So I want to ask you to, to stand this morning and we're going to turn our hearts towards Jesus and thank him, not just for being king, but that we get to be a part of his kingdom work in this world.